Um, all right, everyone, if you have your scriptures, um, God's word, uh, go ahead and turn to uh, Mark 10. Mark chapter 10, that's where we're going to be today. If you don't have your scriptures, don't have your smartphone, those types of things, we have printed it on the front side of your worship guide, and so feel free to follow along with you. Um, let me go ahead and point out kind of the main idea for this morning. That way that you know if um, you get distracted, um, if you have to go to the restroom, if you're just bored to death, you got it, the, the main idea right up front. All right, so I want you to go all the way to uh, verse number 43. Okay, and there's this simple little phrase in verse 43 um, that you may want to underline, you may want to at least uh, think about. When Jesus looks straight at his disciples and he says to them, but it shall not be so among you. All right? That's the main idea. It shall not be so among you. That's a simple phrase. But Jesus is packed. It's packed with all kinds of things where, I mean, it's just dripping with context. All right? But for the main idea, you know uh, from the get-go, it will not be so about you because, because our call as disciples as followers of Jesus, is to be different, okay? Is to be different. The book of Mark is split, is 16 chapters in a whole, and it's split into two different parts, right? Here long enough, you know that in the fall, we went through the first eight chapters of the book of Mark, and now this spring, we're going through the latter half, all right? And so in verse, or in chapter eight, there's a split right down the middle in which something significant happens. Jesus begins to speak very specifically about his purpose, what he came to do and why he came to do it. And he starts doing these things called suffering predictions. He's predicting his suffering. He's predicting his death. And so in chapter 8, what do you hear? You hear a prediction of Jesus' death where he tells his disciples, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be killed, and then I'm going to rise again. Well, then in chapter 9, guess what happens? Jesus comes to his disciples, and he looks them in the eyeballs, and he gives them a prediction of his death. And Jesus says, I must suffer, I must die, and I will rise again. You're starting to sense a theme here, right? And now we are in chapter 10 in class. Guess what Jesus is going to give to his disciples? He's going to give them... Yes, yeah, good answer. He's going to give them a prediction of his suffering and his death. I mean, y'all are on it. I know you're sleepy. It's, it's on the tip of your tongues. Right, and so he's going to give them a prediction of his suffering and his death. That's right, that's right, right. So he's going to come in chapter 10 and he's going to say, the Son of Man must suffer, he must be killed, and he will rise again. Three times, the exact same message. And this is what we need from Jesus, is we need this repetition because we're slow. We're kind of slow to understand and those things. We need this in our hearts. We need this to be true of us. And so is coming to our attention one more time and he says I must suffer I must be killed and I'm gonna rise again last week we hear Jesus say that the last will be first and the first will be last and and those who are going to be great among you actually have to be servant of all 
we've heard this message over and over and over and yet sometimes it just doesn't hit. Sometimes it just doesn't relate. And so today is going to be application heavy where you and I are going to take a little bit of a journey where we're going to hear three separate stories of inspiration of how we are first. If we're going to be first, we're actually going to be last. And if we're actually going to be great, we're going to have to be servant of all. And so these stories are stories of inspiration. And we're going to hear from a coach. And we're going to hear from a missionary. And we're actually going to hear from a parent of what it actually means for this phrase. It will not be so among you. Jesus is looking at followers. He's looking at his disciples and he's saying something's going to be different about you. Something's going to be drastic. People are going to look at you because you do things differently and the way that you do them are really, really important. And so let's get in and dig in just a little bit to this third prediction. Jesus says in Mark chapter 10 verse 32, he says, and they were going on the road going up to Jerusalem And Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And so Jesus is walking ahead, but the people who followed were afraid. And taking the again, so he parsed himself, he walked away from the crowd, whoever is within the galley, and taking the twelve again, remember, repetition, 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 and he began to tell them what was to happen to him. He says in verse 33, see, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will arise. Here's what I want you to know, because we've heard a similar thing three times, three weeks in a row. Here's what I want you to know, that in this verse Jesus says very specifically, He is being described to Jesus as walking ahead of the pack. We know that there's a long gap between Galilee and Jerusalem, but we see Jesus walking ahead of time, walking ahead of the crowd. Why is that important? It's important because we see Jesus not just ahead of the crowd, but the first person to approach Jerusalem. You see, When Jesus is outpacing the disciples or outpacing the crowd or walking at a faster rate, what we see of our king and what we see of the one that we worship is we see one who is not going to back down from his imminent demise. He is about to predict his death. I'm going to be flogged. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be killed. I'm going to be rejected. These are the things that are happening. And what do we see Jesus doing? He's outpacing his disciples. He's leading them. He's leading the charge. He's not backing down. This is our Messiah. This is the one that we worship. The one who doesn't back down from his imminent death and the suffering, and the pain, knowing that the wrath of God is about to be poured out on him. He knows what is about to happen, and yet he does not retreat. He doesn't backtrack at all. He continues to put his face like flint, the scriptures say, and he moves toward Jerusalem. And he takes his disciples' attention. He says, see, look, 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 there's Jerusalem. We've been on this journey for days, if not weeks. I've been telling you that this is about to happen. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to be rejected. But I want you to look at Jerusalem. 
Jerusalem is about 3,500 square feet above sea level. And so you could, as they've descended into Jerusalem, now the ascent is about to happen. And he's telling his disciples, he's looking at the horizon. He's looking there and he says, that's where we're going, folks. That's where I'm headed. And so Jesus is leading the charge and he's pointing to Jerusalem with great almost anticipation and affection. This is our Messiah who willingly walks into death. And the way, the reason he is leading the charge is because he knows that the only way that you and I can be reconciled with a Holy Father is for him to do what he has to do, suffer and be killed before he rises again. This prediction is the most graphic of all of them. We hear words like flogging and mocking and those types of things. This is graphic and it's grotesque and it actually is starting to materialize into what is going on. The word Gentile is actually approached in this, in this prediction in that we are not just walking a religious road here. I'm about to be turned over to a secular entity. And so you know how the Gentiles, you know how the pagans deal with people. You, these are the people who care nothing about the human body. They care nothing about what is happening. They are going to flog me. They're going to mock me. They're going to kill me. I'm not just going on a religious journey. I'm actually going to be handed over to the state, and they're going to do things unimaginable. And I see this picture that as they're walking along the way, the Roman uh, government was so nasty and so, so unbelievable oppressive that maybe, just maybe, they were walking and overhead would potentially be a man or a woman who had been crucified for something. He's looking at Jerusalem, and he's not backing down, no matter how hard and tough it will be. This is what Jesus is doing for us. This is what he's doing. And yet what comes out of our hearts and off of our tongues will totally surprise us. And so as he is giving the spirited understanding of being spit upon and flogged and killed, verse 35, this is humanity. If you're wondering what your wicked heart looks like, this is not just a narrative in the Bible. This is the narrative of all of our hearts. And so coming overflowing from our hearts after hearing Jesus say what he just said, that they will mock him spit on him, flog him, and kill him. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Zebedee, of course, also known as the sons of thunder, came up to Jesus and said, O teacher, O pontificating, I know that you're full of words and full of wisdom. And they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. So coming out of our heart is me, 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 me. Me, me, this is all that they care about. I know this is what you've got to go do, but here's what I don't care a thing about it. He says, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. This is how the relationship is going to work. This is the heart of humanity. No matter what Jesus says of us, to us, of himself, somehow, some way, we cannot get our wicked hearts to stop looking at ourselves. And so what is about to play out here is, is, is pretty amazing. 
It says, he said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, grant us to sit, one on your right hand and one on your left hand in your glory. We know what is about to happen. We believe what's about to happen. Here's what we think. We think you're about to be king. We think you're not just going to Jerusalem just to go to Jerusalem. We think that there's going to be some kind of throne room somewhere where there's going to be some elders and they're going to be seated. We know that you're going to be at the center and that maybe the the chief of staff and maybe the vice president or something's going to sit to your left and right. You get the centerpiece. But we know that the people who flank you to the left and to the right, they're the most important people on the planet. And we want to sit there. That's what we want from us, is we want to sit there. This is what we ask. We ask for me. We want our things to happen for me. And what we do is we turn the sacrifice of Jesus into a vending machine where we just put in a request and we expect Jesus to give us whatever we ask. Because the prayer request and why we have approached him is for us, not for him. For our glory, not his. And so we want, I, we want to sit with you in your glory. And then it gets kind of weird. And Jesus says, um, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or be baptized with the baptism in which I have baptized? It gets really weird because Jesus says, you don't even know what you're asking. Are you able to do these things? This idea of cup and baptism, they're always linked with judgment. This idea that the cup is the cup of of wrath or the cup that we drink is this, this idea of judgment on humanity. Or this idea of baptism is this idea of drowning. This idea that you go underwater because you cannot breathe. And the only way that you're able to get up out of the water is if God does something amazing. But it's these pictures of judgment, both cup. And he says, do you even know what you're asking from me? Don't you know? And the irony of ironies is they want to sit with Jesus in glory. We want to sit to your left and your right. This is what we want from you, from you, is we want to sit with you in glory. And do you know the most glorious place that Jesus ever sat is the place that he ever hung. And so the place of glory, the things that he is ask, they're asking of him is truly to be united with Jesus on the cross because Jesus was most glorified when he hung on the cross and he took the wrath of God for us. This is the ultimate glory when he actually sacrificed all glory for us. And yet we think that we can just get things out of God. He says, they said to him, verse 39, yeah, we're able. And Jesus says to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant with James and John. He says, yes, you will understand what my cup means. And you will understand what my baptism means. But to sit at my right hand and my left hand, that is not mine to give. In fact, Jesus is actually predicting James's 
death here. And so, yes, the glory that you think you're going to get is to sit with me on a throne with a crown and gold and jewels and bowing and singing. This is what we all want. We want the praise of people. We want the praise of men. We want the crown. We want the jewels. We want the acronyms at the end of our names. This is what we're going for. This is what we're going to be acquainted for. But James, the son of thunder, in Acts chapter 12, I believe. Somebody looked that up. Somewhere in the middle of Acts. James, the son of thunder, the way that he understands the cup and the baptism of Jesus is he was the first disciple to be martyred for the glory of Christ Jesus. So yes, you can partake in the glory. But the road, the road is through sacrifice, not selfishness. The road of discipleship is never through selfishness. It's always through sacrifice. And what we can quickly do is pinpoint James and John and their selfish desires. But here in the the last verse that I read in verse 41, it says that the other ten, they heard it and they were indignant. I mean, this is a snarl that you've never snarled at anyone. This is the wrinkling of the nose and the wrinkling of your brow. This is the hot breath and the leaning in. This is an indignation, a frustration. It's not even mad. It's not even anger. It's a deep dwelling emotion that lends itself deep in here that comes out as anger. But at the root is, I have been robbed. Somebody has taken something from me so very precious that I've got to get it back. And so it's not just the 10, it's the entire 12. Because out of our heart, we want the glory. But what we fail to remember is that the glory that we have to understand comes through sacrifice, never through selfishness. This is the road that we have to, that we have to go. And so Jesus has just predicted his death. I'm going to be flocked. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be spat upon. And here we have probably one of the most selfish moments in human history. Because directly after this prediction, we hear this fight among the disciples about their self and their self-glory. And so what do we hear from Jesus? What we hear is patience and kindness. What I would have expected would be like anger reflected in anger or frustration reflected in frustration. But in 42, we get this picture of grace. And the grace goes like this. And Jesus called to them and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles, they lord it over them. And so Jesus just becomes a teacher. He gathers them around and he uses their selfishness to point out their selfishness. And he says, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. Let me just point out where you're heading. If you continue to go like this, you're going to be lumped in with the Gentiles. 
Christians. You're going to be lumped in with the seculars. But more than that, you're going to be lumped in with this idea that the way to get greatness is through power and authority and prestige. We've been talking a little bit about geometry these last couple of weeks because on the graphic has this arc, right? It's this inverted arc that the way to, to greatness is actually a descent into greatness. Well, we now have another arc in our passage. The arc that we always are familiar with, the one in St. Louis and those types of things, is the one that goes up and then it goes down. What Jesus is saying here is this arc, this arc of power, this arc of control, this arc of prestige, this arc of notoriety will come crashing down to your demise. There's two prepositions here of the word over. And so you want to lord over them? You want to rule over you, Jesus says? And this is how it will end. It will end in great tragedy. And it shall not be so among you. And so how does, how does Jesus frame this? Jesus frames it by, says, by saying, But whoever would be great among you, be your servant. Think about that. Jesus says it won't be, that it will not be so among you, but whoever would be great, he's not chastising greatness. He's not chastising firstness. He's not looking down on greatness. He's redefining greatness. He's correcting us by giving us another path. And he says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. The way to understand greatness is this descent, is to understand what it means to be a servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. There is another way to live, and that way is through service and sacrifice and being a slave of all. There's another way, folks. More than authority and prestige, there's another way, but it comes through service and sacrifice. This idea that we are to give our lives to others. And so what Jesus has called us to, he also calls himself up to. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This entire week, I could not get the, this word give out of my mind. The fact that Jesus willingly would be spit upon and flogged and mocked. And that Jesus must give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying that if you look to the world and if you look to other authorities, what you're going to see is people taking taking and taking. And what Jesus says of his ministry and of our ministry is this idea of giving and giving and giving over and over and over. The church of Jesus Christ is alive and well because Jesus says that the gates of hell will never ever prevail against it. But the church lives on the oxygen, the way that we stay alive. The church of Jesus Christ stays alive on the oxygen 
of sacrifice and gifts and giving. The definition for our life is what we can do for others, to extend our lives on others. The way that we breathe in and out, in and out, and stay alive is what you and I can do in this passage to give to others, to share our lives with others, to walk into people's lives, not to receive, but to give. And so to liken your life as a server, a busser, a waitress, a waiter, a slave, because Jesus Christ gave his life for us. Story number one happens in the sports world. There's this team in the NBA that's uh, pretty popular right now. They're called the, um, the Golden State Warriors. And these guys, they, 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 they have the court and they, they are fielding five all-stars. And so one of the all-stars, their leader, right, is actually the one that doesn't lead with points or rebounds or anything like that. His name is Draymond Green. He's known more for his temper tantrums and his technicals than anything else. And so Draymond Green um, is, is flanked by, truly, I mean, just, just the, some of the, the, the world's greatest athletes. So you have Kevin Durant, Steph Curry, these types of players. I mean, just everywhere, right? You got the Splash Brothers. I mean, it's just unbelievable. But, but Draymond Green is the leader of the group because he's vocal. He's in your face. He's no nonsense. He just continues to lean forward over and over and over. Well, Draymond takes it a te- step too far in November, December of, this, of last year. And he takes a step over and he starts, instead of being pushing his teammates, he begins to offend them. And there's a little bit of a rift inside of the soccer room. Well, Draymond knows that he oversteps and he kind of, he plays it coy and he's a little, and he's very arrogant. And so he just plays it off like it's no big deal. And yet his, co- soccer, or his, his college coach knew that something was going on. The article that I read reads it like this. It says, I knew that something was wrong with Draymond when he goes dark. He simply stops calling or returning phone calls or he stops returning text messages. Draymond's been out of college for years, maybe even almost a decade. And his college coach continues to keep in touch with him. And he knows him so very well that he knows when he goes dark. So Tom Izzo, the coach of the Michigan State Spartans or something, he gets on a plane. He charters a plane and he flies to... Um, the Warriors' next destination, I believe it was in Denver. He shows up unannounced because he has to put his eyes on his most valuable player. His most favorite player has gone dark and he doesn't know what's going on and he's got to get in front of him. So Izzo's example was, yes, it's a rescue of a guy that he knows has the world's greatest potential and one of the greatest leaders that the NBA has ever known. But the sacrifice is that he's got to give up time with his family. He's got to get on an airplane and move across the country to actually get in front of him. But what he actually gives to Draymond is he gives confidence and he gives relationship. And he's the one that's starting the conversation. He knows the only way to bring him out of the darkness is to get inside of his head and look into his eyes and to bring him and to draw him out. This is what coaches do. 
They live their life of a life of sacrifice, to give, to draw out. If it's true of coaches, it's got to be true of missionaries. And so in the late 1800s, there was this missionary, his name was John Patton. John Patton was a Presbyterian, and the Presbyterians, if you're Presbyterian in here, um, you, you know that they have been orderly and they have been strategic from day one. Whenever they got started, I mean, they have, they, have, they have their junk in order. It's amazing. And so they were making this huge step into the Pacific, and they were moving into these, these islands called the New Hebrides Islands. And the only reports that they had back from uh, the New Hebrides were that these little chain of islands, hundreds of them, that the tribesmen, they were just the most malicious people on planet Earth. And so the people that they sent, the presbytery, the presbytery would send, they wouldn't come back. They would go and they would be martyred and we wouldn't know, we wouldn't have reports on whether there would be anything happen. But the presbytery would continue to send missionary after missionary knowing they would likely not come back one of which was John Patton. And John Patton set sail with his, with his wife, actually a pregnant wife. They arrived, a wife, pregnant. She ends up dying of a fever and leaving John all by himself on this island. He saw no fruit whatsoever. He comes back. So they kind of reschedule and do some things, and the, they were about to just kind of dismiss it, but John had a burden in his heart. He says, I've got to go back. And so the, the, as John left, uh, he didn't leave because of the death of his wife and child. He left because the tribesmen were getting more and more angry. And this is a tribe that would turn to cannibalism or infanticide and all types of things that were just grotesque. And so in this cannibalism, they were truly, they were killing and eating their other tribesmen and, of course, missionaries, those types of things. Well, John has it in his mind that he's going to go back. And he says, I'm going to go back. And the missionary, the, his head missionary says, you can't go, John. He said, what are you going to do? Go and be eaten by tribesmen that won't even listen to you? John Patton squares his shoulder, and he was an elderly man. And he looks to him and he says, You, sir, are about to die of old age in which the worms of this earth will eat your flesh. What does it matter? What's it matter? Worms or a tribe that don't know Jesus, that doesn't know Jesus? It is my calling to go. It's my calling to go. And so John Patton, a second time, gets on a boat and he heads to the New Hebrides. Decade or two later, revival has set forth on these islands and people are casting off their idols and John Patton is not being eaten. John Patton is telling about the one who surrendered his life for them all. If it's true of coaches and it's true of missionaries, it's got to be true of parents, where all love is a sacrificial love. The only way that life is given is a life taken away. And so when Jesus says that I have given my life as a ransom for many, he knows that the only way that you and I can 
receive life is for his life to pass away. All the greatest love stories in the world have this undergirding notion, this, 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 this current, this current of sacrificial love. Some of us won't be NBA coaches or NBA players, and some of us may or may not be missionaries. Most of us understand the sacrificial love of what it means to be a parent. The sacrificial love of reading until wee hours of the night, or comforting a child with nightmares, or changing diapers, or truly loving someone so very much, especially when you're out of control. Our third story is not a missionary, it's not a missionary, or not a, not a coach, but instead it's one of us. It's a story of, of Amanda, Josh and Amanda at Roark, and what they are about to go into. And the understanding that they love their little one so very much that they literally have to give her back to the Lord. So I've invited Josh and Amanda to bring little Avin Lee up and to tell us a little bit of their story. So come on up, you guys. Come on. All right, so this is one of us. Um, this is our family. Um, all right, so just give us a horizon. What, what overlooks your life in the next two weeks? Because things are going to drastically look different in the next couple of weeks. So what do you, what do you guys are about to experience? Okay, well, um, Avonlea is six months old, and... Um, Around eight to ten weeks, we um, she was diagnosed with craniosynostosis, which is a fancy medical term um, that means that one of the that there's lines in her head that are fused that aren't supposed to be fused so early. So um, next Tuesday, a week from this Tuesday on March 19th, she's going to have a big surgery on her skull bones to loosen that up and to restructure her face where it's um, grown disproportionately. Um, so we're going to do that. It's a big surgery. We'll be at Vanderbilt for about a week. And um, she's a healthy little baby otherwise. She doesn't have any other um, health issues. As you can tell by looking at her, she's pretty cute too. Um, but she agreed to that. She, um, you know, recovery will be difficult and um, waiting has been very difficult. Um, you know, I was just thinking about it the other day and we've said, Obviously, we wish this wasn't our story, um, and it has been a different um, experience to kind of have that on our minds constantly, looking forward to the surgery, and then not not being, you know, being out of control and not sureing what what will be um, the recovery process. And then obviously, there's a lot of um, fear um, that we're battling with with her just being through such a big surgery and afterwards. And I'm uh, in the medical field, so that makes my mental battle a little bit more intense as well. Sure, so, sure. Josh, walk us through uh, as far as what has changed as being a parent, you know? Like what this six months of waiting, wondering about surgery, dates, doctors, diagnosis, those types of things. So what's happening in the heart of a parent when you have to hand your child over to the Lord? That's just it, I mean, it took, it, it took Amanda a little bit longer to process, you know, the diagnosis and stuff, what was going to happen. And being in the medical field, I kind of, being a coach, I kind of had basketball to kind of fall back on to where my mind kind of went there for a while. And 
but I kind of had to get to a point. It's like she's in God's hands. We had about ten, we had about ten day span where um, getting the doctor, our pediatrician, to put in the order for the three D CT scan, get the insurance to pay for it, and all that stuff to have it done. And it's like you have ten day like go 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 trying to get all this stuff taken care of. You go to Vanderbilt. It's a ten second procedure. And then we go wait for a couple hours. Then we meet with the doctor for about 15 minutes. So it's like this climax. And it's kind of like, oh. And then now the season of waiting again for the surgery, we have a date. Um, but I've told my coworkers here at Providence and numerous people, it's, I, I don't know how people do it without Christ. Because it's, you know, you don't want your child to go through this, but but it's about God's peace. It's because of God's peace that I can't, as a parent, I can't get through this. So. Okay. Um, the Lord has also been just so faithful as we know he is, but I want to share one story from the beginning when, <laughs> um, when we weren't sure of the diagnosis and I was suspicious and just had some mama's intuition that something was wrong. Um, our pediatrician, honestly, it's a, the type that she has is often missed by the pediatrician. So we were trying to figure out where we were going to go and what the next step was. And I did my anesthesia training in Nashville. And so I texted my friend Heather, who works at Vanderbilt Children's, just to ask her advice about the team there. And um, so I haven't talked to her in years. Um, we were good friends in school, but um, that's been like 10 years ago. And um, I texted her on an afternoon, and I'd been told that um, it was really, like, took a couple months to get in with a specialist there, and she called me back about 15 minutes later, and she was at work at Vanderbilt, and she was walking to the operating room where Dr. Kelly, the director of craniofacial surgery at Vanderbilt, was operating at the time. She's on the craniofacial team, and she's one of the chiefs there on the craniofacial team, and she went to the operating room where Dr. Kelly was, and she showed him the one picture of her of Avonlea's head that I'd not shown to anybody else. Um, it was just the odd shape of her head that I thought was odd. She showed him the picture, and I could hear him talking to, to her on the phone. Um, and he said, here's my scheduler's personal direct line number, and I want you to call her in the morning and tell her you need an appointment as soon as possible and to add a CT scan because you're coming from out of town and I don't want you to be here for more than one day. And that was the beginning of um, a lot of relief. I mean, it's been difficult and I've, um, the Lord has been near to me on a daily momentary basis to just believe that he's in control and he's got her in his hands. But um, there have been numerous stories like that where the Lord's intervened and done some, some things that are just astonishing and otherwise, you know, unbelievable. So that's great. And so church body, um, we'd like to pray for, okay, so we've got Amanda and Josh and Avonlea, right? And so Avonlea is, is six months old and surgery is on Tuesday, Wednesday. A week from when? Tuesday, Tuesday, the 19th, the March 19th. 19th. Okay. We have all that. Okay. All right. So let's pray for, and here's what we want you to do. We don't want this to be a lead prayer. We want you to pray to King Jesus for the Roark family and for this surgery and for these, these, these folks by name. So let's pray. Jesus, you know the Roarks by name. 
And you say in Acts 17 that you know both the places and the times in which we are born. And so Avonlea's diagnosis does not surprise you and doesn't make you anxious. It makes us anxious. It doesn't make you anxious. And because of that, we take great comfort that there's one in control and the one that's stronger than us who knows all things. And without that, Lord, we would just be, you know, just shaft in the wind or we would just be blown to and fro. And yet we can hold on to a strong anchor knowing that you love the Roarchs more than we could ever love. That you love Avonlea more than Josh and a man could ever love her. And so we give her back. We give her to you. Especially in these unique days. These days of surgery and anesthesia and brain and skull and bone and fusion. And all of these things that seem so very scary. And yet you have given great wisdom and great knowledge and delicacy to these men and women that will be inside this operating room. Thank you for their expertise. And we pray that they understand that they're being prayed for and prayed over, Lord. And so, Jesus, as our church body, we are in a season of praying for names because we know that you have come and you've given us all a name. And so help us to lift up the name of Avonlea Roark over and over and over again. Allow us to intercede for this family. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks so much.